Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Heather Copley. Heather is the Managing Director at Farmer Copley's Farm Shop Limited, an award-winning family-run farm shop cafe, function space and event centre located in West Yorkshire. Uh, Heather, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure, Heather, welcoming you on. Certainly is a uh, lovely day for it. Um, I think we should begin by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that as we record this on the 21st of June 2021, um, we're not quite um, enjoying the Freedom Day we expected. We're still living under some form of COVID-19 related social restrictions, and that's been the case now for the best part of the last 14 months. So working within of course, the industry that you do. To what extent has all of this affected you and your business over the last year? Well, the last um, the last year has been the most fascinating year we've ever worked in. Uh, it has been, actually, financially for the business, it's been really good. But we have chopped and changed and um, mucked around with our business like you just would not believe. Uh, it saw, when we first started, we, we panicked. And we thought, oh, my gosh, you know, how do we manage to keep the key staff that we wanted? We made some Saturday kids and that redundant. Um, we panicked. We didn't sleep. Uh, we ended up um, working out, you know, how many fields, et cetera, we'd need to sell to manage to keep the core staff that we needed, thinking it would last a few months. Uh, thank goodness the furlough scheme, scheme came out. That was a big um, thing for us. But then... Uh, the business went about 600% up on the farm shop side, which was absolutely insane uh, and brought with it its own logistical issues. But because we'd actually had to close our cafe side of the business, the Moo Cafe, we actually had a lot of staff that um, we could draw on and a lot of space that we weren't using. So we were able to set up a drive-through and our drive-through business actually as in a drive-through shop not a drive-through takeaway mm. uh, drive-through business was doing uh, 30,000 pounds I think it even got up to 35,000 pounds a week which was more than the cafe would have been doing had it been open um, and a lot of our local suppliers because obviously it's literally the farm either our farm or another farm to us they all chopped and changed and they all stepped up so they may not have been selling their eggs say, for instance, the local egg farmer to loads of restaurants, but the chickens were still laying eggs every day, as they do. So we were able to um, facilitate getting that product to our farm and then retailing it to the customers. So although it's been, um, it was stressful, it was also absolutely fantastic. And as a local food movement, farm shops across the country really became part of the community again. So we were in, in our own bubble which actually was quite nice because we still got to see people as well we didn't have that whole we didn't feel as isolated as um many of the actual consumers and the public did we were seeing so many thousands of people a day 
So it's been a, a fascinating experience for the business. And I think the local community have fallen back in love with their farm shops across the country. I think that's brilliant in so many ways because it's an example of the great sort of innovation and adapting that business has been doing over the course of the last few months to sort of keep key services running to their communities. And I think that communities have started to recognise farm shops as, of course, not just a vital part of themselves, but also as a social hub again. Because I think when it comes to sort of the mental health and well-being side of things, especially that's been amplified by the pandemic, we've missed that interaction with other people, haven't we, in some way, shape or form? Yeah. And we relish that so much more as a result of all of this. Yes, very much so. Um, I know I've seen a big shift. We, we have um, the online bit and we have um, hampers and different things like that. Mm-hmm. And people are shifting for their gifting uh, to having family events. You know, it might only be six or two households at the moment, but you can see with the barbecue, the garden parties, that's what's important to people now, actually spending quality time with their friends and loved ones, which is, is really good and it's really a much better way to be as a people so I think there's going to be um, and I hope there's a lot of changes that have come out of the COVID pandemic that are actually going to be for the better both in business and as a as a population you know as an actual um, family first and friends first and looking after your neighbours. I think that's very right. I think that sort of sense of community has really been enhanced, of course, by the uh, the pandemic as well. And that's hopefully something that we can take forward out of this. And I suppose yeah. another thing that we're taking out of the pandemic as well, despite, of course, the struggles and the tragedy of it all, is a great many lessons as well. And I suppose from your sort of business's point of view, the experience of having to adapt to this new reality, change the way that you operate. I guess you are coming out of this um, to date, feeling like you have learned something and you're stronger for the experience mm, we've learned uh, the biggest thing we've learned um although we were already pretty good at it if i'm being honest is about just being flexible uh and being so solution driven so for instance we had a big event planned for this friday coming freedom friday we called it with a big queen tribute act at the farm really just a um a party excuse for myself because we like a party and we can't do it we're doing it the following free, you know, when the Freedom Friday is actually announced. Mm. It's not a problem. We just we're not getting stressed about it. We've just moved everything. Everybody's relaxed, um, and it will be it will be absolutely fantastic when it actually happens. But that whole sort of level of relaxedness as, as, uh, and flexibility is key, and it's been key with the staff, key with the staff that work, the staff that were furloughed that have come back, and nowhere near as flexible. And we've had some quite interesting um, challenges, shall I call it, with with some of them. But the the actual people that worked through the pandemic, uh, they seem also, I would say, in a much better mental state and they're very adaptable and we're all very solution-driven as opposed to, oh, I can't do that. You know, if there's a problem, it's right, well, what do we need to do to get that sorted? And we work it out straight away. So I can see definitely two different um, sort of groups of people, if I dare say it, 
I can see where you're coming from there. I think we have seen some examples of some people falling back on sort of the anxiety side of things and maybe not wanting to sort of come back to work and do certain things and others who've really sort of gone above and beyond the port of call and really brought the best in themselves out during the pandemic. So I can certainly see where you're coming from there. There are two sides of the coin in that sense. Um, And one thing I wanted to discuss as well is that in your industry, I suppose being in farm shops, being involved in that side of things, you are very passionate about educating the public about their food, where it comes from and promoting homegrown produce. Now, what we have seen this year, given, of course, the fact that traveling abroad is very difficult and we're a lot more aware of sort of local produce supporting local businesses as a result of the crisis and its impact on them, we are finding that attitudes toward buying British and going with homegrown are really starting to proliferate again. And I suppose maybe the fact that Brexit's come about at the start of the year has also had an impact on that. But however it's come about, I suppose that's incredibly beneficial for businesses like yours, isn't it? That people want to buy British and are passionate about local business. Absolutely. Uh, we, we When it all first started and obviously everything went through the roof, Robert and I were talking saying, gosh, I hope this lasts, you know, sort of like six weeks. Uh, this, this love of the farm shops because that would start to become a habit. Well, little did we know it was going to become a much, much longer thing, and it has become a habit. But also it's the experience and it's the taste. It's the quality. Now people have got used to eating not necessarily always just local food, but British food that is in season. They can see the difference. So we've got pick your own strawberries on at the moment and they're in tunnels so people can actually pick them socially distanced, etc. And then they eat them. Those strawberries just taste so much better than a strawberry in November, December that travels, goodness only knows where. And that's what we're sort of finding as a, as a group and as, a, as, as the, the British people are re-engaging that you should only have those products when they are actually in season, which is better for the environment, better for their taste, usually better for their wallet as well and um, better for the British agriculture. So I think they're actually appreciating what they're eating as opposed to just eating stuff as a source of energy. They're actually enjoying eating again and enjoying cooking and baking. Baking banana bread last year was insane. Everybody baked banana bread. Mm. Yeah, absolutely right. And I I think because we've had sort of all that time indoors during intermittent lockdown restrictions, people have been sort of cooking more things from scratch, sourcing fresh ingredients and just trying new things. And again, for any businesses related to farming, related to food, I mean, I suppose that's something that's brilliant to see, isn't it? It's great to see. The one thing that we do have to be careful of as farm shops, and it's okay as long as you're you're on it, is is that the consumer has also taken this time to help educate themselves so we need to all be on our a, you know our a game to make sure that um that we're doing it all correctly etc because obviously the consumer knows an awful lot more uh, so you know there's a lot of staff training and making sure they understand the different types of flour and where they come from so they can answer the questions that the customers may well have um, and also because the customers haven't necessarily seen people because they have been isolated, when they do come to us or a place like us, they actually want to engage in conversation as well, So, which is great. And that's what we're all about in farm shops. Yeah, exactly. They relish that social side of things more. They relish knowing more. And I think that's also helped by the fact that when we talk about the economic recovery that we can expect post-COVID, there's a new sort of resolve and a vigour for that 
um, recovery to be a green one and environmentally friendly, sustainable. Yeah. Um, we're talking about knowing exactly where our food comes from. We're reducing waste. All of that is now entering the conversation and people are just so much more aware of it now in these interactions. Yes, very much so. It has been a little bit um, stressful, though, with the cafe. When we reopen the cafe, to make sure we're COVID safe, obviously we're using mm. sachets um, and single-use menus, which we're doing, and obviously they're on recycled paper wherever they can be. But personally, that does a great on me because it's not as sustainable as we would like to be. But all the owners of farm shops would be like myself, and they, they want to, as soon as we can physically move, where it's a safe scenario into a safe and sustainable scenario, they will. And that will be fantastic. So I suppose in that sense, um, being able to sort of bring back sort of reusable menus and things, that's something you're going to have to wait for that sort of 19th of July Freedom Day for. And as soon as that comes along and you can sort of welcome full capacity back and almost business as normal in a sense, like that sort of extra sustainability can sort of come back into the equation. Absolutely. But we have found, we put in with the cafe to start with during the August last year before the, or must in the July actually, before they did that help out to eat out, which was mad busy that. Um, we were, we put a new QR code on our menu and I was amazed. We got up to 80% of our customers would use the QR code on the phone to do all of their ordering of the cafe, which was absolutely amazing really. Um, so there's been quite a few technologies like that that we will definitely be keeping uh, when we we do go back. Well, maybe we, I don't think we will go back when we take the best of before coupled with the best of now to move mm. the business forward. I think that's an incredibly important point, Heather, because we're not going to just go back to sort of the status quo from before, are we? I think there are going to be some features of this lockdown period that are going to be a permanent part of the way that we do business in this country. And that goes for all sectors. Yes, absolutely. And and I think think businesses that can adapt are going to come out stronger and better. And I know it's awful you do see businesses that have folded, um, but some businesses maybe haven't tried or adapted a lot of people would come into to us to start with and think gosh are you open I can't believe you're open um I thought you'd be closed and I we were like well what else did you expect us to do we're farmers we perceive ourselves to be very much frontline workers you know we we've got food you need food I know it's not medical but um it was quite interesting how people thought maybe we might close the doors where of course to us we just went into almost like this is an emergency uh something like out of a a movie really um this is an emergency and we need to do our bit and all the team were the same as well so um so i think we've learned a lot and our and people that have been able to adapt are going to be a better business going forward Yes, and thinking about going forward just before we do wrap things up on the show today, uh, Heather, um, as we hopefully venture into that post-COVID world, what are you hoping to see from the economic recovery? And indeed, by this time next year, where do you see your business? Well, we've already invested heavily in our business in the last few months with the deli, um, uh, big new deli we've put in. We've put pods outside so people can have their small gatherings outside in a COVID-safe well, say pods, they're not pods at all. They're more like a wooden, um, an Arctic cabin, they're called. So they've got these personal spaces. I see the business 
really um, shifting to, it was already planned, but shifting more so and quicker to a outdoor on-farm experience with the picking and let, linking people really to their food. And, and I, what I would really like to get in back into the shop, one thing I would like to get back in, is the theatre and the tasting element. That's something that I would like to see because I think that couples with everything else that we do will really elevate um, the actual shopping experience. But I know a lot of places are taking out people. They're taking out their delis. They're taking out. I want to major on that and the theatre and the interaction with people because if without people and interacting, I don't. I don't think the retail experience is. Um, is a winner. The, I think people are going to shift massively towards the internet shopping still, as we have seen. But we, as farm shops, are going to be the place that people are going to want to come to when they've done their supermarket um, shopping, where they've got their toilet rolls, their cleaning products. When they want their fresh food experience, I believe they're going to be coming to us. And I think we've got about four or five years of that, of boom for the farm shop industry and farmer's markets. It will be interesting to see where we are when we come out of that because customers sometimes do go back to maybe the supermarkets or supermarkets will catch up on the theatre and start reintroducing what we've been doing all along. So it does tend to be a bit of a cycle. Um, but I'm I'm really excited for the next four to five years to watch Pharmacopolis grow into what it can become. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting and I wish you all the luck in the world in growing the business over the course of the next few months and years. And I think as we start to understand what the economic recovery is going to look like in the months to come, I'd actually love, Heather, to welcome you back onto the show with us and just catch up on how things are getting on in the post-COVID world because it is going to be an interesting time for industry and there are still a great deal of uncertainties as to just how things are going to pan out. So it'd be good to sort of review that later on down the line. That would be fab. That would be lovely. Thank you. Yes, I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on the show with us today, Heather. So thank you once again for joining us. And once again, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're not quite out of the woods yet, but I'm confident the better days are ahead of us. Good. That's great. Thank you so much. You take care too. And I'd also extend that to all of our listeners tuning into the show today as well. Please do continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives. Um, it was a pleasure, of course, for me to welcome Heather Copley, Managing Director at Pharma Copley's Farm Shop Limited, onto the programme today. Uh, coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be discussing his take on the events of the last 14 or so months and his hopes for the weeks ahead that's what'll be coming up next Lord Blunkett welcome thank you very much it's very good to be with you um, well of course uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19 uh, which uh, we must touch on um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can 
uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up, and they've shown uh, 
local, regional, national level, the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by 
local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to 
everything being London-centric, I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with mm. you you can you can sponsor reports and this is true of business planning of course as well and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like recovery plans for business what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack what happens if there's an energy shutdown sh- shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack. Uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think 
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.